This is eSports Today with Rob Zachney and Andrew Gruen. Welcome to this edition of eSports Today for September 15th, 2015. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, alongside Andrew Gruen, here to fill you in on the latest news in eSports. On today's show, StarCraft has another fantastic week and Foreigner Hope springs eternal. We also take a look at this weekend's fighting game major, the Fall Classic, as players jockey for position on the road to the Capcom Cup in December. But first, today's top story has to be the knockdown dragout fight between Team Solo Mid and Virtus Pro at the ESL ESEA Invitational in Dubai this weekend, where the two teams went back and forth across five maps to determine who would take the $100,000 grand prize. We're joined now by Team Liquid.net's Counter-Strike writer, Joe Wong. Joe, before we dive into the specifics of the semifinals and finals, let's talk about this tournament as a whole. This was billed as a tournament of the very best of the best. And judging from the group stage and semifinals results, it really seems like there is no best team in Counter-Strike right now. It seems like it's pretty much anybody's game. Yeah, you know, when you get these kinds of invitationals, they can sometimes be kind of a wash in in the in the sense that the results don't really have that much weight to them but for you know how how this came about was ESL kind of introduced the Cologne tournament as their 250k tournament that wasn't supposed to be a major but Valve stepped in and said okay let's just make this a major so i guess they've just taken these funds and transferred it into this Dubai tournament um, as sort of a precursor to their second season. Um, and there was also an extra mix-up in that they initially only invited six teams, um, but then they sort of just caved into some community pressure and uh, just added in two teams. And oh, who it's were the late additions? I think it was TSM and not and Titan, I think, if oh, I'm not mistaken. Cr- oh, wow. Yeah. Because how it worked was they kind of announced this ranking system, and TSM, for some reason, uh, was, I think, ranked fifth or sixth, which was just underneath their sort of uh, their, their invite list. Um, and so people were like, TSM at that time, when they first announced it, were, were you know, challenging the second, uh, the, the best team in the, in the world uh, position. And so it was, it was kind of a, a misfire by them. Um, and so they ended up just having to force uh, invite them uh, at the end of that. Yeah. So Joe, you you mentioned that it's kind of a, it's kind of a wash. It feels like almost a little bit random uh, who manages to come away with with a title on on you know any given Sunday. Um, what what do you feel like is that factor that puts one team over all of the others? Like, what did VP have that nobody else had this weekend? Virtus Pro, who, who took away with the tournament title. It's really surprising because, you know, Virtus Pro is a team that has a very storied history. You know, they're they're right up there with sort of ninjas in pajamas, Navi, with sort of the core roster. I, at the start of CSGO, I don't believe they've changed their roster at all since they've sort of become Virtus Pro. And so you have these core five guys, and they're also known for sort of a lot of infighting and kind of arguing to each other when, <laughs> when they lose rounds they shouldn't. And that can, you know, really affect their performance and, and kind of cost them games that they should really win. Um, and so they're, they're a bit of a volatile team in that sense, but, you know, they've also stuck together for, you know, two, three years. So it, it's surprising to me because coming into this tournament, tournament vp definitely were not you know the favorites um to win this whole thing and their bracket run was absolutely insane so 
you know, it, it, it's hard to say exactly why or how um, VP have come away with it. I think a big reason is kind of the best of one group stages in the sense that because these teams are so tightly contested, one mistake by one player could cost them the entire um, you know, game and, and in that sense cost them the, the group stage. And so in that sense, the, the, the groups can be a little bit volatile. But yeah, v, definitely there's, you can't take away anything from VP's run. One of the things I was really enjoying at this tournament is that it was a tournament that was showcasing some of the uh, deeper strategy of Counter-Strike. That A lot of these were not necessarily just battles being decided uh, out there on the map, uh, you know, who was shooting better, that kind of thing. But there was a lot of very clear cases where the teams were having to run economic strategies to sort of get their, to sort of battle their way back into a series, or uh, they would have to basically just kind of surrender a map and just sort of accept that, okay, we're completely outclassed on this map. This is this is the other team's map. We're just going to give it to them and we're going to move on. Uh, and, and I'm curious, you know, I'd love to hear your insights on, on those elements a little bit because I think, you know, a lot of us approaching Counter-Strike from the outside, it looks like this ultra-twitchy shooter, which to an extent it is. But at this level... There are clearly these sort of metagame issues happening uh, that are a lot harder to appreciate. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard topic to get into sort of really quickly. But, you know, we talked about anti-stratting before and how some teams have really, really studied other teams and, and know exactly where each other uh, play. And in that sense, maps are... are in the similar vein, in the sense that everyone has a kind of preferred map. And, you know, there's, I think, seven maps in the pool right now. As a team, you can't realistically practice all seven maps and be comfortable with all seven maps. And so you have to take some, you know, risks and kind of play to your strengths in that sense and and kind of pick a couple maps that you feel really strong on. And in that sense, they're there becomes a split because you know you you start to find that some teams are are unbeatable on this map or have a super good defense on this map and it's becomes really hard to break and in uh you know in the case of the finals where it's a best of 5 and you're you're seeing five different maps being played out you can really start to see those differences start to start to shine yeah, so when it comes to the maps themselves, another thing that I, that was a little difficult for me to suss out because you had so many cases where teams were just dominant on certain maps, like uh, Virtus Pro just seemed to completely own Train. Uh, mm-hmm. That was that was those those maps were never really in doubt. And later, when uh, it was in the finals and TSM were playing uh, Virtus Pro on Dust, it was even worse. It was an oh, even yeah. more lopsided massacre. And I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm a little curious. Uh, it, it seems like there's a couple things happening there. Yes, one is that these teams have clearly sort of studied up and they kind of own these maps. But on the other hand, it was also difficult for me to figure out whether it was just training that was accounting for these huge differentials. Or whether those maps also have certain biases toward the counter-terrorist or terrorist side that these teams were exploiting. Yeah, so the reason why it's difficult to, I guess, talk about the sort of map structure in in, in much depth is 
the fact that there's so many factors, like you pointed out. Um, in some cases, it is the fact that the map has a strong um, counterterrorist bias. There have been maps in the past, like Nuke, um, where it's extremely natural to see, you know, 12, 3 CT, CT halves um, or 13, 2 CT halves. That's just like almost the status quo. And it's a bit absurd to, to think that way, but it, at the time, it was, that was just the case. Um, but of course, there are also things like players where in Dust2, for example, having that sort of straight line down the middle, um, that sort of sniping range that's, that's extremely famous um, in sort of the Counter-Strike and gaming history, a, a team with a, a crack shot sniper can absolutely dominate that entire map just by himself, just the plain fact that he can, you know, control that area as a terrorist. And just having that single player can really, really um, destroy the opposing team's chances. There's this, you brought up that um, the, the straight line down the center sniper uh, concept. And then there was one moment, uh, it was actually a Ninjas in Pajamas versus, was it Virtus Pro? No, it wasn't Virtus Pro. I can't remember exactly where they were playing in the, in the semifinals. I think it was Envious. And... This, it might have been. Uh, anyways, well, in the semifinals they were playing. They were playing TSM. Uh, but right, if you're talking right, about right. group stages, uh... <clears throat> no, it was the semifinals. Oh, okay. um, and there, there's this one moment. And it was part of this really broader theme, I think, of like ninjas in pajamas showed up, and it was like they were having fun. Mm-hmm. They were like they were having just so <laughs> much fun out there. They're just doing weird stuff. And there's this one moment where they've got this huge lead, and the announcers start going crazy. They're like, "Oh my god, it's a shooting gallery." Yeah, and they're on dust two, and they equip three of these high, really high-powered sniper rifles, and the rest of the team just starts. All five players on the team just start unloading down the middle of the map, just like shot after shot after shot after shot after shot, just hoping they can pick someone off randomly. And I was hoping you could kind of like explain what the heck happened there. What what is the the basis of that strategy, and was that like a legitimate thing that they did there, or was that kind of a, a like a like a foolish have fun kind of give the crowd a show kind of moment? Yeah, well, it, it it's kind of it kind of harkens back to the the old school kind of like scrimmy style of play where you're on the last round and you you have that that sort of bank of money, um, and you you know you have say ten twelve k in your in your in your bank, and so. There's no real reason to save that because you end up losing it all when you switch sides anyway. So a lot of the cases, some teams will just go, all right, let's just buy auto snipers and AWPs and just, you know, destroy anyone who tries to, to jump over. Because um, as, a, as a counter-terrorist on Dust2, to get to the uh, second bomb site, you have to jump over the sort of double doors. Um and if you have five guys just shooting for a solid, you know, like 10, 15 seconds, you're bound to get a hit 100%. And so it's kind of just like, all right, it's the last round. Let's just see what we can get. If we get a kill, if we, you know, get someone down to 10 HP, that's still really good for us. And there's no real reason to save this money. So right. it, it, it does, though, feed into the the story of, of ninjas in pajamas and how they played and how sort of coming out of it uh, a lot of the teams said yeah they were just playing like they had you know that they're they they had no reservations um Mm -hmm. and it worked for them to an extent but you can you 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 definitely saw definitely at the semifinals they kind of hit a brick wall there where the team uh tsm kind of just realized all right we're we're not going to mess around um you know we're we know you're you're not really giving us much respect and you're not really playing the way that 
you, you should be playing in the sense that it's very a cautious playing style. And so we're just going to, you know, stop you right there. Right. And there's, there's a broader theme there um, where you talked about how the, that, that shooting gallery is kind of a reaction to the way the economy plays out towards the end of the, of the, of the side. Um, and I find it really interesting because when you when you're approaching Counter Strike, I think as a, as a new viewer or a new player, one of the th- one of the like pieces of strategy that I think is most accessible and most obvious is when you start seeing teams play with the economy. Like we, you, it's not really visible to the new player right. how teams are are moving through the map or how they're they're spotting for different strategies. Those things are very high level, but like using the economy to your team's advantage is a very easy thing for a new player to understand. And I was hoping you could kind talk a little bit about how teams use that kind of classic econ round where they've just decided we're not going to buy any guns <laughs> you know we're just going to go in there with pistols and no armor and uh, you know are there differences in terms of how teams use that how they approach uh you know getting money when they need money that sort of thing yeah so how counter-strike works is that there is a kind of stacking uh money bonus for each uh round that you lose um you know it starts off at 1400 then bumps up by 500 every time you lose and so there's kind of a breaking point where um you have maybe you know two thousand dollars in your in your bank and you know that even if you lose this round you'll have enough to buy and so every team knows that and a good player uh you know just a regular guy just picking up the game um will will really have to pick up that the sort of e- economy management aspect of the game very quickly, and it'll give you an edge because you know exact. You can you know pretty much guess what how their the enemy team's economy is doing and, and what kind of equipment they'll have coming into the next round. And so, in terms of like econ round, I guess um, that kind of the strategies for that vary from team to team. A lot of them just take it you know as just a a free round to the opponent sometimes some teams like envious who are insanely good with pistols have very specific strats where you know they'll stack three or four guys to a site and then have one guy um scout out uh on the on the other side to see and suss out where the opponents are and you know it just differs from team to team and and it can be pretty interesting um depending on what team you're you're watching um those economy rounds can be insanely devastating so getting a little more specific i actually want to talk about the very end of the virtus pro and team solo mid series because i think a lot of these themes were actually encapsulated in the closing minutes of their match on mirage and you know the entire the, the entire series was really dramatic it was really tense the, they went they went the full uh five maps and it was really interesting because you saw uh you know TSM and Virtus Pro both just sort of surrender maps to each other because they were just clearly outclassed. Uh, Virtus Pro owned Train, Team Solomid completely owned Dust. But it really came down to the wire uh, on the final map, Mirage, where Virtus Pro had gotten off to a really strong start and they just needed to pick up a few more rounds to win the series. And TSM mounted a pretty amazing comeback, culminating in... um, I want to say it was round 27 where Virtus Pro had gotten off to just an amazing start. They basically massacred, I want to say, like three TSM members right out of the gate. 
and so it was it was it was a clearly lopsided uh round at that point uh going against TSM and then TSM mounted an amazing comeback uh, i want to say it was on the back of um Sipnix. Yeah, Sipnix. Uh, very difficult name to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so he, he mounts this amazing defense and, and comeback. Um, and at that point, it seemed like that should have been all she wrote for Virtus Pro. This mm-hmm. was their chance to sort of reverse the momentum. They'd gotten off to a great start, and they just get completely outplayed by this, this one star player who'd been coming through for TSM all day. And then somehow it all went wrong for TSM. And I want to talk a little bit about those closing rounds because it seemed to touch on a lot of these different things where, you know, the the economy comes into play, where, you know, the very, like, losing the next map for TSM almost seemed to cost them the entire uh, series and they couldn't come back from it. And I'm curious just how did, how did TSM lose all the momentum in the final three rounds of the uh, deciding match? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because normally, you know, I talked about how Virtus Pro have been known to sort of crumble or or argue um in times where they have, you know, lost a huge comeback. And generally I think this is where you would see Virtus Pro just absolutely stop um functioning and have TSM just take the finals right after that kind of insane five versus two where, where Sipnix just diffuses the bomb. Um, but I, I think that's that's what makes Virtus Pro's win here so legendary and so amazing. The fact that they could come back, you know, get lose 12 rounds in a row or something and, and be on the edge of uh, losing the entire tournament and then come back with this ferocity that that TSM just couldn't handle going round by round is it's a little bit tough to to analyze but VP is really known for their for their amazing mirage play and especially on on the terrorist side they just have this really kind of aggressive style where they can just burst out onto any point of the map whether it be middle or the A bomb site and just absolutely destroy their opponents and and it just kind of clicked for them at, at that at that point and just managed to secure them the final two rounds. Okay, yeah, because I do think after they'd lost that um where where Zipnix Zipnix had sort of denied them that win. I do want to say that VP I think was on all AKs after that. Yep. They had one they had one round where it was like this was their last buy in. Yeah, and they were still, I think, out equipped by TSM, and uh, they they managed to do exactly what you said—that sort of hyper, like hyper aggro, uh, you know, sort of storming positions uh, style of play. And yeah, it definitely seemed. And this was this was what surprised me is that after Virtus Pro did that, TSM's economy was in ruins, which mm-hmm. sort of stunned me because I think if you'd been following how that half of the uh, how that half of the map had gone, TSM had been winning pretty handily and doing really well. Uh so I'm I'm just a little curious like why did like why was the reversal in terms of the economy so severe at that moment? Like TSM right. had been tilting it had all been in their favor. Uh I'm just a little curious like why losing that that 28th round uh after such a good run was so devastating. So how 
Counter-Strike's balance at, at this point is because at the start of the game, the the CT side was so heavy, heavily favored in the sense that you're holding a defensive angle and you just have a lot more tools and it's easier to just pick off, get get easier kills, I guess. Um, it's It's been balanced in such a way that the terrorist side can survive which a mu- with a much more sort of scrappier economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you get that single round, if your sort of rounds uh, subsequently have been, or previously rather, have been close, say, like having one or two remaining counter-terrorists alive... Those guys are actually at the same level of economy as you are because you're getting, say, 3,400 for every loss, but they're only getting 3,200. And their equipment's way, way more expensive in the sense that their guns are, you know, $500 Mm. more. Their grenades are slightly expensive. And they have to invest way more in a round equipment-wise than a terrorist can. And so sometimes you'll see that breaking point where where a terrorist team will have lost 10 rounds in a row, but it just so happens that the last five rounds have been incredible, like 1v1 clutches or 2v1s, and the CT economy is actually just as bad as the terrorists. So the second the terrorist team wins that round, it instantly flips because the the counter-terrorists then only get you know 1,400, and then they have almost nothing to buy with. So Joe, but before we let you go, um, I wanted to the, like the main question I wanted to ask after this after this tournament is, you know, it, 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 was this like a, a fluke weekend for Virtus Pro? Like we've seen them kind of on the cusp for a long time. So like, is this the is this the dawn of of like a great time for Virtus Pro, or was it kind of a fluke? Because like we saw these moments, like it, it was clear that like everything was just together for them this weekend. There was one moment uh, in their in their semifinal round against Fnatic. Um, where they're sort of like spiritual leader Taz, who you can recognize because he wears a hat that says <laughs> Taz on it. Um, uh, he, he's sitting outside of a smoke screen and he he gets a kill he's just spraying into the smoke screen and actually runs out of bullets and looks down picks up somebody else's guns and managed to get two more <laughs> kills out of that just like a, a, a horribly blind triple kill this amazing moment that just seemed to like fall in his lap like that um i'm wondering like was this just a moment uh, a weekend where everything came together for virtus pro or is this is this the beginning of something great yeah i mean it's it's hard to say that it's it's kind of a beginning a new beginning for vp because you know they don't have new players they don't have there's no fresh blood to say okay this guy will change the entire thing for for this team and it's more of a kind of consistent struggle i guess with the team wrestling with with themselves and in they they're they're known you know in in the community people call call it the virtus plow where they kind of steamroll teams sometimes and you see these kinds of 16-5 16-3 score lines and they're definitely a kind of team that has a switch where if they can find it and if they can turn it on and all five players are playing together with with cohesion they're you know definitely up there with the best of them um so it's it's hard to say that you know for VP are definitely uh, gonna you know have a have a huge streak from now on um but the potential is always there i guess well either way it made for 
a really incredible tournament, an amazing finale. I think one of the best we've seen in a while in Counter-Strike. And uh, definitely has us a little more excited for the uh, ESL, ESEA Pro League. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe Wong, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Elsewhere in the world of esports, we also caught the Fall Classic 2015 fighting game major as some of the best players from the East Coast and North America as a whole competed in a half dozen fighting games. Uh, This tournament is considered a major event in the fighting game community, but it's maybe not what you might expect if you've come to understand a major tournament in the context of, say, Counter-Strike or StarCraft. Things are a little more casual, and the production value is maybe not quite as high. Uh, Andrew, what's what's the main takeaway from smaller tournaments like these? Yeah, you know, I think I think smaller regional tournaments can can be a lot of fun in their own right because basically you get uh, you really get a lot of the local flavor. You see all these players named like Tampa Bison, you know, which is which is basically just a screen name letting you know that this guy is a Bison player from Tampa Bay and he's representing for his character in his local scene. Uh, you know, if you watch Evo, you might be familiar with like PR Balrog, which is essentially just a great player letting you know that he's a Balrog player from Puerto Rico. Not a public relations uh, professional. <laughs> I'm, no, no. I'm Balrog. I'll be handling your account this week. <laughs> Uh, but you know these these smaller tournaments are significant because you can get a much better and fuller understanding of, of the game that you're watching. In this case, the main event was Street Fighter, uh, because the level of play is just a little bit lower than it is at the biggest tournament of the year, Evo. Uh, and because of that, you get to watch and you get to see a much wider array of characters and play styles. I mean, you'll never get Bison getting into the top eight at Evo. You'll rarely see very much Guile play. And this weekend, we got to see a a Zangief player named Snake Eyes win a tournament, which is just a ton of fun. You know, Zangief in particular was a character I was really excited to see a lot of this weekend because... Uh, the analogy I kind of like to use with, with Zangief players is that they're a lot like knuckleballers in baseball. This, this style of play is completely different from what other characters uh, are, are. It's completely different from other characters. And, and nobody just casually plays Zangief, it seems like. You're either a Zangief player or you're not. You know, Other players will sometimes be able to switch at will between a wide range of, of characters, like a pitcher with a number of, of, of uh, different pitches in his, in his back pocket. But Zangief players play Zangief. Um, and it's not exactly a, a super top tier style of play, but you do see it a lot of these regional tournaments. And, and this, this Zangief style of play is really fun to watch from a viewer perspective because it's so simple and it kind of lays bare the mechanics of the game in the same way something like Ryu tends to do. Um, because as a viewer, you understand that, that Zangief's mission is to get inside the guard of the other player. He's sort of this like this Russian wrestler type character whose his whole mission is to just like wrap the other player up in a bear hug and throw him around. Uh, and and his, his mission is to kind of manipulate the spacing of the map so that he can get inside and use these incredibly high damage grabs and throws. Uh, and, and Zangief play... And you can tell this by watching it is incredibly difficult and takes this huge amount of patience and discipline to wait and understand exactly when your openings and opportunities are and to not get baited into these moments of, of, of like false opportunity. Um, but yeah, seeing those variant types of play like Zangief, like Guile is a lot of fun. Uh, before we move on from that, I'm just curious, what is sort of the dominant mode in, in Street Fighter? Is it a little more like uh, standoff, like, you know, you know 
throwing uh, powers or is it a little more like kick action I'm, I'm curious like what is why is it so difficult for a character like Zangief to sort of succeed in the way Street Fighter is structured well I think when you watch uh, Evo particularly like the top the very top level of Evo you see a lot of people playing Ryu and Ken and Akuma who all play have had this very similar style that sort of classic fighting game style where they you know they punch they kick and they throw fireballs you know they have air defense like they, they, it's just sort of the basic vanilla fighting game st- uh, character style that a lot of people really like because it, it helps you just you're just playing the game you're not playing a character you're playing the map you're playing against your opponent and so like the general fighting game style is just you're trying to create the right space to keep your opponent in the at the right distance from you and just throw these little pokes these little fireballs these little like you know safe sweep kicks with ryu or something like that uh and, and zangief needs to get much closer to somebody than that he can't attack from a long range uh and and so it, it can be very fun to watch how someone slips past the guard of someone someone like guile who, who can be very defensive and very safe and, and figure out how you're going to manipulate the map such that you can get in and grab a character like that so that was ultra street fighter 4 but the fall classic hosted 21 games in total <laughs> yeah. uh, so was there anything else that was notable that came out of the event besides the flagship yeah, my, my favorite thing about, about East Coast tournaments is that a player named uh, NY Chris G always shows up, and the guy is just a monster at 2D fighting games. Like, he doesn't really compete in 3D fighting games, but 2D fighting games he just knows probably better than, than just about anybody else alive. Uh, and the only player who can really hold a candle to him in, in North America that other people might actually know is, is Justin Wong. Uh, and both of these guys are known for their sort of marquee game, and Justin Wong's case is Street Fighter. In Chris G's case, it's Marvel versus Capcom. But beyond those main games, both of them just understand 2D fighting games at such a level that they'll show up and win tournaments and games that they barely play uh, and so chris g finished top 10 in five different games this weekend i've seen tournaments in the past where he finished in the top eight in something like 10 different games um and while he does that he'll also win several of, of, of those games so this weekend uh his his sort of marquee game marvel versus capcom 3 he won and he also won king of fighters 13 uh, and he's he's just this unheralded genius of America of North American fighting games, and he might be the most accomplished North American video game player ever. But almost nobody knows his name outside of the fighting game community. Uh, so you know, you know these smaller tournaments give you an idea also besides like the juggernauts like chris g they also give you an idea of who to watch out for in the upcoming major tournament which is going to be the capcom cup in december uh we'll be keeping an eye on the last tournaments before that main event as players try to sweep up the final points in order to to get into position and qualify for that event yeah uh but in the meantime we also had a great deal of action going on in in starcraft 2 you know rob what can you tell us about that so a lot of things happened this week in StarCraft, including the KT Rolster team upsetting the vaunted SK Telecom squad in Pro League's Round 4 playoffs. And that would be an exciting uh, result, usually, except that this match was basically meaningless. Uh, both of these teams are competing in the Pro League season playoffs, which is the whole shooting match. And that's what these teams have been playing toward for the past several months. Uh, last week, KT upset SK Telecom after SK had enjoyed a pretty dominant season. Uh, but S- uh, but KT have had a much rougher season uh, than I think a lot of people were expecting and are kind of the underdogs yet again, even more than they were last year. 
Yeah, so for, for people who aren't as familiar with pro, the Pro League system, it has this really confusing structure where there are four seasons per year, and each season has its individual playoffs, but then the whole year has this big shebang playoffs at the end. Uh, and so what we just had was a, was one of the seasonal playoffs. No, round one of the playoffs. One of the round See, no, you can't even talk league. about it without it being stupid because <laughs> it's a terrible format. Like, it is a format. How do you justify eight teams playing for eight months out of the year? You can't possibly justify it. So you have to create this Byzantine system where you have four <laughs> rounds, which are basically seasons unto themselves. Each season has a playoff that determines, term, determines final round finishing order, and none of it makes any sense. And you end up with this ridiculous situation where the round four just ended. You've got playoffs, but these are the fake playoffs. These are the playoffs where it's like, <laughs> okay, guys, these don't really matter, so just do whatever. Because everyone's keeping their powder dry for the real playoffs that do matter uh, later this fall. So it's it's a ridiculous it's a ridiculous system, uh, but but God help me, it, it lets you catch so much good StarCraft uh, throughout the year. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. it was fun to just watch this sort of like warm up round to kind of see you know where we're at going into the into the the real playoffs as, as we said. Uh, but you know, aside from that, I think the really big news in StarCraft, the thing that sort of watered and nurtured our blossoming enthusiasm from last <laughs> week, uh, was the WCS finals in Poland. And to explain why this was such a big deal. I think we need to explain how uh, WCS has changed a lot in the last year. Uh, WCS is Blizzard's overarching world championship series. It is their attempt to sort of create a system that takes all the regions that play StarCraft and generates a finals bracket for BlizzCon and a credible world champion. And they revamped that system quite a bit to deal with the fact that WCS America had become saturated with Korean players in the previous seasons. And Europe was only doing marginally better. Uh, so Blizzard changed the residency rules to make them a lot stricter so you couldn't have Korean players just sort of jetting over to dominate these uh, tournaments. But then they also merged WCS America and WCS Europe into a single region. So now there's just the one World Championship Series with only a handful of Korean players, which gives non-Korean players a chance at some notoriety in front of home audiences. And, you know, I think you'd have to say that ended up working out pretty beautifully at this first WCS final, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, especially if you're a European fan, uh, what Blizzard has always struggled with is to create a system in which non-Korean players have a real chance at victory, but that's a it's a hollow victory unless they're challenged by at least some Korean names that that players recognize as being at least in the B tier of, of Korean players. Uh, you know, even if they're name from names from yesteryear that aren't really relevant anymore, uh, it, it, you say you have to have some sort of final boss monster to face off against in order to create drama. And, and also, very importantly, you need those players around to sort of sharpen the skills of the European players. Otherwise, you have a scenario in which if the Europeans only play against themselves, then they never push themselves uh, to these sort of new heights that they can do if they get a, if they get a constant opportunity to play against and practice against Korean players. Uh, and this was the season where that all really came together for Blizzard, where we saw some decent Korean players like 4GG, Hydra, and Pult get narrowly taken out by rising European talent like Mana and Lilbo. Uh, and the result was was a phenomenal tournament full of just like great games, comebacks, and drama. And I think everybody was excited about StarCraft at this year's WCS. 
Yeah, and it all culminated in this fantastic final where you had the hometown favorite, uh, Poland's own um, Mana, playing against France's Lil Bo, who would clinch a spot at BlizzCon with a tournament victory. Uh, so the stakes were very high for both of these players. Uh, but before we get to that, actually, you know, I, I hardly know where to begin with this tournament because there were so many dramatic reversals. And, right. uh, you know, let's start with Lil Bo. Uh, because he really had to claw his way into the final. Uh, I remember you you sent me a message, I think, in the middle of the week during the round of 16, where you were like, this guy's choking <laughs> it, he's done. Uh, so, so what did we see, see from Lilbo to get from that moment to yeah. arrive in the final? Right. So, I mean, it kind of started out with this great moment where he is in a dominating lead against Jadong. Uh, Jadong being kind of one of the, the, the fixtures of Korean players in uh, outside of Korea, plays for the team Evil Geniuses. Um, and he, is, he has this dominating lead, and he proceeds to just completely throw it. Like, there are moments where he's not even marking his army, and Jadong just kills his entire base in the base trade, and he somehow manages to lose a game. He's hugely ahead, and I thought, I thought for sure Lil Bo was done. I thought he was about to choke. He was going to realize he wasn't up to this task, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but time and time again after that, we would see him win matches simply by being better at engaging with his powerful Protoss armies. Uh, the sort of bread and butter of his armies is this unit called the Stalker, uh, which can be upgraded to teleport a short distance. And so what players will do is they'll they'll engage in a fight, and then when their Stalkers start to take a little bit of damage, they'll teleport that Stalker a little bit further away so they're not, they're not likely to be killed anymore. Uh, and so... In doing so, they can win entire fights without actually losing any units if their stalker micro is uh, micromanagement control is, is very fine tuned, uh, and Lilbo's stalker control was unreal. Uh, but per, you know, personally, beyond that, like I'm not really sure how much of a chance he has at BlizzCon um, now that he's going to actually be able to go to BlizzCon because he won this tournament. Uh, because we've seen that he's really good at StarCraft, like he's, he's very, very good at, at playing and manipulating the Protoss race. But I'm not sure he has what it takes to stand up to, like, the really crafty Korean competitors. The question is whether or not Lobo has that Korean ice in his veins, that cold calculating strategy that that allows them to win series even when their opponent is a technically better player. Um, but, it's you know, it's worth noting that if anybody has a chance at BlizzCon, it is Lilbo this year because he had a really rough road to taking this title this weekend. You know, he had to beat Jadong, like we talked about, even though he had that embarrassing throw. Um, he had to fight back his, like, his emotions from Lee. He had to talk himself back down from a cliff after kind of embarrassing himself in that game and beat a really vaunted player like Jadong. Um, and he also beat 4GG, which is a he's a fixture of the of the the Western scene. And then he beat Hydra as well, who is who is the Korean player who is the uh, the reigning champion of the WCS. And that's three out of the top four Korean players who we expect to demolish players like Lil Bo. So he may have a better chance than we think. You know, uh, Mana had a similarly tough road. His tournament got off to a really rough start in the round of 16, where he was nearly eliminated right at the start. Uh, he got through in the deciding match of the group where he beat Marine Lord. Uh, you know, who, by the way, that guy can go straight to hell. Uh, seriously, I don't think I have ever turned against a player as completely as I did against Marine Lord in his series against uh, Zanster. Uh, did, did you see the series? I can't even remember what game it was. I think it was game three, where Marine Lord just turtles up 
on like three bases and covers his side of the map in planetary fortresses and missile turrets and runs a mech strategy. Uh, so it was the most excruciating game of StarCraft I've seen in about a year. And it was just one of the most nerveless displays of uh, Terran mech play that I've ever had the displeasure of watching. Welcome to Foreign StarCraft, Rob. This is the kind of StarCraft that I hate so much. I am a Terran player. Uh, I'm a loyal Terran player. Uh, so when people defame the race with this sort of slow, boring play like this, I, 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 I just cringe, just like you do. And it drives me a little nuts because I watch that and I know how difficult it is to play against that turtle style. It is really effective. But at the same time, I know, I know that a top-tier Korean player would make mincemeat out of that strategy. So it's frustrating because you're just, you're just begging for innovation or zest to show up from Korea and just slap these guys around you know, and teach them a lesson. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure what they could have done against this because, like, if you looked at that map, the amount of defenses on that map were ridiculous. But this is, I think, what really, what really just got me, got me, like, just seeing red, is the fact that. It was an unwinnable position that Marine Lord had put himself into. You can't go off of three, four bases and then see the entire rest of the map to the Zerg player. Like, the Zerg player mined out every other... Zanster mined out the rest of that map. So just in terms of, like, pure, like, brute force, like, who has, like, more economic power, who can replace losses, like, there is no earthly way that... Marine Lord was going to win that win that match, right? So you're basically just hoping that your opponent's an idiot who's going to attack move <laughs> into these defenses again and again and again until you kind of win by default. And so it was just it was infuriating to see that sort of strategy where it's like, you know, how like why are you making us go through this? Because you put us in a position now where your opponent just has to wait you out. And eventually you're gonna have to move out, and then because you're a crap player, you're gonna get eaten alive. Right, and I think that one of the things with StarCraft to kind of reverse engineer why a player was able to do that and what, what you can do to, to stop something like that, you have to think about why was he able to do that in the first place. And like that's what a Korean player would never have allowed to happen. He was able, you're able to do that sort of thing as a Terran player because the Zerg player just sort of like loses their nerve and doesn't come kill you while you're setting up this ridiculous, uh, absurd defense. You, you should never be allowed to have the kind of time he needs uh, to set up that kind of ridiculous defensive position yeah uh you know anyway just in closing just thank god mana knocked marine lord out of this <laughs> tournament because like having him be the foreigner hope for the rest of that tournament would have just been like oh i've just been choking on it the entire week like even pretending to get behind this guy uh anyway uh mana went on to give us one of the most emotional moments in starcraft as he played korea's 4gg in the semifinal in front of his home crowd and won a really close match he won the series three to one but that actually doesn't tell you the whole story because 4gg actually forced a draw in their fourth game but what was great is that um you know mana didn't even seem the least bit rattled uh he came out of his booth gave a thumbs up to the crowd and it just it, it felt fine it was it was under control uh, he was clearly the better player in that matchup. He executed this hold in their third game uh, on the map Moonlight Madness that was probably one of the best defenses I've ever seen. Uh, did you catch this? Like, Mana had yeah, nothing yeah. 
Uh, he had one teetering Colossus and some gateway units, and 4GG was coming at him with this sort of nonstop bio pressure. Uh, just tons of Marines, Marauders. Uh, and usually, you know, nine times out of ten, this is the end of the line for the Protoss. All 4GG has to do is get up the ramp into Mana's main base, and it's all over. Just get up, clear away the opposition, and you get into the production buildings. Game's his. Uh, and Mana was so freaking cool. You're talking about that sort of that ice in your veins. Uh, Mana, Revan just spamming out gateway units that couldn't serve the, uh, save the day, like a lot of lesser players would have done. Um, he built uh, a couple Archons and a Colossus. And that was pretty much the only thing that he was waiting for at the top of that ramp. Uh, and you know, it was, it was the, the, you know, the, the first wounded Colossus drops and just the second one pops out immediately and the Archons come forward. It was just gorgeous. Yeah, that was a beautiful strategic game uh, from Mana, uh, where, you know, he was playing this game down to the millisecond. You know, he had complete ice in his veins. Like, the the, the beautiful moment of that game was uh, 4GG comes and tries to destroy the third base uh, of Mana, and Mana can't defend it. And you can tell that as a viewer, but, you know, in the moment, that's an incredibly hard decision to make. But he knew exactly where and when he could engage with and when he was engaging against a superior army. And if he didn't have the proper angle, he just walked away. He would sacrifice entire bases because he just he knew he couldn't defend them well enough. And he knew that in like maybe five, six, seven seconds, you know, just that fine of a margin, he was going to be able to defend in a much better position. Um, And it sounds like this really obvious tactical decision uh, to to not engage when you can't win a fight. But in the heat of the moment, it takes a truly superior class of player to allow their base to be destroyed just to, in order to buy a few extra seconds. And it was actually at that moment where I actually thought we were going to see Mana beat the champion of this tournament. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't bear out that way, but like judging from that map, he definitely could have come out as the champion. Um, and, and, you know, I actually I kind of disagree with you. I actually think that this series was less close than the three to one the three to one margin sounds like because that one game where 4gg forced a draw by by floating his terran building into the corner uh and and mana couldn't afford uh, a gunship to go shoot it down it, it was kind of comical because everybody watching the game knew mana deserved the win uh, and so it was actually like mana beat him four times out of five in a best of five series you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that because actually i was pretty furious when that draw came down because mm-hmm. i was like it was just this, it was, it was, you know, good on 4GG for, for recognizing that he was screwed and right, getting right. a building into a position where it couldn't be shot down. Usually, I think maps are constructed so that actually doesn't happen uh, as much, but, uh, you know, in the rematch, Mana was in such complete control. And, you know, a lot of other players, I think, would have been rattled by being denied the victory in that last base trade. Uh, but Mana just, you know, he knew Forge G was going to keep trying for these uh, these knockout doom drops where you fly your medevacs in, spam, uh, you know, widow mines and uh, infantry down into the base, destroy your worker line, uh, just repeatedly, you know. that That's what Forge G was staking his entire game on. And Mana knew that. And he just let Forge G shatter himself in that final game. And it was this gorgeous example of what happens when one player has just completely figured out another. And it turns into this like judo move where the other guy's force is turned entirely against him. 
Yeah, this was I. I loved watching Mana in this tournament. He actually actually felt like he kind of had um, like like moments where you saw a little bit of Reigns played, like the dominant Protoss from Korea uh, in in his in his style and his in his ability. Which was really really fun to watch because Reigns is one of my absolute favorite players. Um, but you know, on the other side of the equation, like we love to talk about the the foreigners, like the uh, the underdogs that we all want to cheer for. But on the other side of the equation was 4GG, uh, who is, has been kind of a fixture of the foreign scene for a long time, dating back to the old MLGs in 2011 and 2012. And it was kind of a sad moment to watch him kind of flounder in this tournament because I feel like this might have been the moment where we can say definitively, like, I don't know if 4GG has a whole lot left in the tank. You know, when he played his series against Pult, I was actually kind of infuriated by that because his whole his whole thing was like, you could tell 4GG knew he was not as good of a player as Pult. And so he could not risk the game going into the late game because he just wasn't going to be able to contend. And so he, did, he wins with all these, like, one base pushes, these almost borderline cheese strategies. Uh, and, it, and it was and it worked. It was a, it was a brilliant tactical maneuver from a veteran competitor. Uh, but you could kind of tell, like, I'm not sure this guy has it in him to to compete at the top level anymore. Um, you know, and once all of those other matches had happened and we got into the final with Lil Bo versus Mana, uh, we haven't talked as much about Lil Bo quite yet. But it felt like because his matches weren't as as climactic as as Mana's were. Uh, but it felt to me, I don't know about you, but it felt to me when we got to that final between Mana and Lil Bo, it was just really obvious that Lil Bo was just a little bit more of a talented player. And it was Protoss versus Protoss, so like that little bit is really all that matters. Uh, and you could just feel that he was a, he was just slightly more in command. Uh, of the Protoss race. And, uh, you know, Lil Bo, Lil Bo is now likely moving on to BlizzCon, and it's going to be really interesting to watch. But that does it for all the news from esports today. Now let's talk about esports tomorrow. So the big thing this week is that ESL ESEA Pro League is kicking off, which was kind of the whole point of that big tournament in Dubai this weekend. Uh, ESL is the company behind pretty much every major Western esports event we talk about on this show outside of League of Legends. Uh, They run a lot of major Dota tournaments, Counter-Strike, and StarCraft events, including WCS. And this Pro League is an attempt to turn Counter-Strike into the kind of regularly scheduled competition that we've got in StarCraft and League of Legends. It's split into two divisions, uh, Europe and North America, and each division will be playing four matches a week from now through mid-November. Uh, The games start this week, and you can watch them on Twitch or at ESL.TV. And it's an interesting idea, and this is their second season, uh, so they've they've had time to refine their formula. And I feel like there are a lot of attempts to get esports to sort of fit this kind of regularly scheduled traditional sports model. But, man, you know, I think the problem a series like this is going to have to overcome is the fact that the big weekend tournaments are just so intense and high stakes. And, you know, Andrew, I feel like a jerk saying this uh, because I'm the first guy to put his hand up and start complaining (laughs) about how difficult esports are to follow and how bad their scheduling is. But I have to admit, I have mixed feelings about this series and series like it. Uh, Do you get where I'm coming from? No, I totally do. It's so hard to make an esports scene make that transition from big climactic events into a slow burn league system. Every esports struggles with it. And I think a big part of the problem is that it has a way of feeling hollow at first. You know, the league organizers and casters will all say during the event, like, oh, this tournament is so important and prestigious, but the fans have never heard of it before they don't care about this yet there's no history here uh so there's this bad gut reaction to it at first where it feels like kind of corporate 
but over time, I think it ends up being a more sustainable model. Uh, Counter-Strike is sort of still the frontier in esports. Valve has opted not to come in and control the scene. And that allows companies like the ESL to experiment uh, with leagues like this. Uh, and I would say that as long as the league is easy to follow uh, and they're good about scheduling and making brackets and, and league information readily available, then I think it'll be a positive change. You know, it's, it, it really comes down to is there like one web page that I can go to to get standings, statistics, and some analysis? That's, that's what you need. That's what the WCS has. It's what League of Legends has. It's what Dota does not have, by the way. Um, and and that's that's really that's like kind of the crux of it. Um, but we'll see how that shakes out. You know, elsewhere in the coming week in esports, uh, we've got the StarCraft II Star League final uh, on so- Sunday, September 20. And remember, Star League is one of the, those three main StarCraft leagues. That's going to be between Bial and Hero. And it should be a phenomenal match depending on whether or not Bial shows up to play. You know, Hero is pretty rock solid, but Bial is at turns either the best Zerg player in the world or a complete scrub depending on what day of the week it is. Uh, we'll also be watching the GSL round of eight. That's the other main Korean StarCraft league, and that'll be running all week long. Or at least we'll be watching what we can make out of it on the low-quality GSL stream for non-subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it, it hurts me It hurts me to say, but that has become a tougher tournament to watch uh, unless you're all in on StarCraft. Uh, but anyway, we'll be discussing these tournaments on next week's show on September 22nd. But that's all we have time for this edition of Esports Today, an Idle Thumbs Network podcast produced by Michael Hermes. Uh, you can learn more about the show and discuss esports with us at the Idle Th- with, and the Idle Thumbs community at our website, esports.com. Today, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and answer questions on the air. So drop us a line at questions at esports.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at ES2D Podcast. If you've enjoyed esports today so far, please review and rate us on iTunes, which is an incredibly helpful tool for a new podcast, and share it with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be back next week to discuss the past, present, and future of esports. For Andrew Gruen, this is Rob Zachney signing off. <laughs>